May it please the court. My name is Rachel Steenholt, and I represent Mr. Truax. We are asking this court to vacate Mr. Truax's conviction based on two independent and compounding trial errors. And in the alternative, we request a remand for resentencing as the sentence was substantively unreasonable. Turning to the first trial error, on the final day of trial, the government cross-examined Mr. Truax based on information it discovered through a recorded jail call that was never turned over to the defense. There are four points to make on this issue. First, this call was discoverable as a recorded statement under Rule 16A1BI. <coughs> Second. Counsel, I have a question up front here. and um, This is Judge Kobus on, on the line. Um, I understand that the basis of this claim is, is essentially Rule 16, and that refers to a recorded statement of a defendant. Um, so is it is it the telephone call, really, that's the heart of your claim here, or is it the, the book that was referenced in the call? And does that distinction make a difference at all? It's because, you know, I understand you didn't, your client didn't know about the phone call, and um, counsel didn't know about the phone call. But your client knew about the book. So, so can you help me work through if that matters or not? Sure. I, 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 there's two questions in there. I'll take the, the, the first question you asked first. So both the book and the call are contained in this discovery rule. So the call contained Mr. Truax's request for a book. That's from case law or your reading of the rule? Reading, our reading of the rule plus the facts of this case. So Mr. Truax's request in which that's the recorded statement, it's this request for this book. Uh, that book instruction instructs him on how to testify at trial. Mm -hmm. So this indicated to the government um, that Mr. Truax intended to testify at trial. It was his request, uh, which makes this, this statement relevant. It makes the book relevant. It's relevant to his credibility. It um, goes to his knowledge of this book. It goes to the purpose of the book. Um, so we've got the discoverability question here. And, of course, there's no actual defendant statement that's actually offered at any point here, right? It's just, have you read the book, okay? And so, you know, the question is, is that they should have, or the argument is that the statement should have been discoverable um, and should have been produced because it would have led to possibly admissible evidence, right? A clarification, it, it did lead to, they only get, it is the thread that leads to the book. This is the only way per the court or the government's admission, this is the only way that we get to the book. Right. Yes. But, but we're talking about evidence here and we're talking about what gets in front of the jury, right? And so as far as the evidence that's actually in front of the jury, there's the statement, the defendant's statement itself is never offered. So that's the, the only problem that, 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 that exists there is, is was it discoverable under Rule 16? right? Correct. Okay. Now, your client, of course, uh, knew that he had the book, knew that the conversation took place. He just failed to disclose that uh, to uh, uh, his counsel. Now, these sorts of things happen, you know, with some regularity in trials. And I'm kind of wondering is why was there never uh, uh, the request for a continuance, an in-trial continuance, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, 
and it is impeachment, right? So at the end of the day, if you've read a book and there's and it advises you to testify in a certain way, that is, you're not arguing that that wasn't proper impeachment, are you? It, uh, the government is within its right to to um, to impeach a client and, and challenge its credibility, correct? But there's a couple things to unpack there, and one of the things is tied back to Judge Kobus's question about this book. He, he had this book in his possession. He knew about the book. I think that's a misunderstanding of Rule 16A. Um, Rule 16A requires that the government inform the defendant of the evidence that it has against him, and that includes the defendant's recorded statements under 16A1BI. Um, and those statements, again, are the thread that leads us to this book, and um, to your second point about whether uh, the remedy question. So if we have this discovery violation, which we do, um, what's the remedy? And under 16, Rule 16D2, there are remedies listed, continuance being one of them, and that is the most popular, popular remedy. But that wouldn't have been an appropriate remedy here. And there's three reasons why. Well, I'm going to jump ahead because on this, on this point, um, your remedy arguments um, are creative. They, you don't have any authority for them. But, but leaving us that aside, when we get to prejudice, the prejudice argued is no, t no time for counsel to prepare but that's, that, I mean, that's, that's the, the, the opportunity to review before cross-examine actually is not the prejudice claim. The prejudice claimed is, oh, he wouldn't have taken the stand. Now, give me a case where that has been found to be, pre to be qualifying, so to speak, prejudice. Sure. I don't have a case that I can cite to on that. It's um, pretty, that's pretty, that's a pretty dramatic statement and from that you want a new trial what You're, are you going to promise that he won't testify at a new trial heck no well um to answer your question about prejudice there's there's three prejudices that we see here you've identified two of them so one is this sort of sword but the opportunity to cross that, that's that's a nothing because because as judge as judge erickson points out it was just a it was. It wasn't a problem until he until he 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 lied about what he knew. And so what was what was the opportunity to prepare about that? I think that Miss Well, counsel would have would have known would have dealt with his client differently before trial, I suppose. Well, respectfully, I think that mischaracterizes the facts in terms of it wasn't relevant when he had this breakdown on the stand. It was relevant. The moment that he requests the book, because it reflects that he intends to use this book. Well, it was relevant to the government when he, when he did the uh, dramatics on direct. Sure, but um, because they, they skirted around the discovery rule that required them to disclose this. But where's the prejudice? Okay, prejudice. Okay, so we'll go back to prejudice. Yeah, well, what's, sure. the, th what's the third one? Because I, Yeah, well, so the first one, you know, we have this sword shield that's being used. So they should have disclosed this. They use it as a sword. We don't have the opportunity. No, that, no that's back to arguing the merits. I'm talking okay. about prejudice now. Okay. Oppor opportunity, counsel opportunity to prepare doesn't fit this, this trial. So what's your other claims of prejudice? Okay. Um, 
The second way would be <clears throat> back to the point about that it did thwart his his ability to make an informed decision about his constitutional right to but testify. But you said there were three. I'm, I'm, yep. The third one I would be on that one because that one I think is is very interesting. Yep. So the third really goes to the fact that this error is is magnified at closings. So it's more about the the not harmless error aspect of this error is that it's further just magnified. You, you mean it's just a, it, it's another part of your alternative or your your closing argument? Um, well, they're they're independent. Not really. Not not if you're claiming it. The same thing that was in prosecutor misconduct was also prejudice for the early the discovery mistake well, or whatever it was. The reason that they're independent is because they're, the, le they're legally independent. You can you can derive you can derive uh, correct. You can cite yep. different authorities, but it, it, they're not. That's not independent prejudice. So if you lose if you lose on the prosecutor misconduct argument, you're going to lose prejudice. Prejudice. I, I disagree because on the impeachment argument, it's it's about. No, you did. Let's. I want to come back. I'm trying to get you back to what you said. That there isn't any authority for. We do have authority on the on the impeachment. No, on the on the notion that a failure to disclose something the defendant already knew was prejudicial because if he knew the government had it, he might have chosen to exercise his constitutional right not to, not to testify. That's your argument, right? It's one of them, yes. The one I want to talk about. Yes, correct. Well, come on. You said you don't have a case. I've never heard of a case. I've never heard of the argument. So flesh it out for me. I would... What, why, why can... Um, the government having, you know, the, the government the government may have a witness that that has been nominally disclosed, but but whose testimony will be will um, refute or otherwise discredit what the what the defendant was planning to testify in defense, and so that the argument, oh my goodness, you know, he's his. His constitutional right to make the decision to testify—that's prejudice. What I mean, I, I, I've read a lot of cases in this area. I wasn't a criminal trial lawyer, but that just—that uh, strikes me as preposterous. I understand your position. So I mean, you—you uh, you don't—you don't have <laughs> no. I'm sure you. I'm sure you've researched it. That I haven't. You know, this is this is a unique set of. Facts. I don't know if there's another case. I certainly haven't found one where this sort of uh, fact scenario happens, where um, you know a defendant well, uh, breaks I, I, down. I suspect it's not unusual for defendants in post mortem to say, "Why did you let me testify?" Because it just hurt my case. Um, but I mean, it's a creative argument, but I, I just don't see how it it can be can be. Um, uh, legitimate prejudice in this context, but and the remedy. You're saying the only viable remedy was to exclude the book. Correct. Yes. To exclude everything, not just the book. To exclude that 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 recorded jail call statement occurred, uh, the records related to that, all of it. And the reason being is, you know, there's three points to the remedy part. Why this was the only viable. 
uh, remedy, um, we already discussed that he had already began testifying, so we'll set that one aside. The second one is that just a continuance was logistically unfeasible, as this was a trial held during COVID with only one juror alternate. So any delay risks just incurring a logistical nightmare. And finally, <clears throat> any delay could have been lengthy. This was a 304-page book to read, the possibility of obtaining additional witnesses, possible or experts. To is this is back to the council for preparation prejudice? Because, yes. because by the time, by the, as I understand the impeachment questioning, that was focused on specific parts of the book, and the defendant said, oh, I'm not familiar with those. And then the rebuttal witness said, yeah, those are really parts of the book. So it wasn't 304 pages that counsel had to, had to um, uh, redirect on. Well, to clarify that, we didn't know what to we didn't know what specific the government was going to, you know, there could have been other excerpts in the book that were helpful to defense. We don't know. We didn't get a chance to. Oh, that's his fault. He didn't tell you about it. Well, I think, again, that that's a misunderstanding of Rule 16A. The, the, the government is required to, to turn over. I'm talking about prejudice. Period. Okay. Because I think prejudice, uh, you know, you're, I think you're, your other, your claim on the merits is, is, is stronger than your claim of prejudice. Okay. Um, I do see that I am running out of time, so I will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Mr. Kelderman. <coughs> May it please the court. Ms. Steenholt. <coughs> Uh, Your Honors, the United States submits that the, any violation, if there were a violation of Rule 16 here, uh, that violation, and the United States is not conceding that, but if there were a violation, that evidence was excluded. There were no jail calls that were admitted. Uh, the, the defense, the appellant, has not shown that these were in the United States' possession. They were jail calls. Uh, jail calls, and the United States, the prosecutor, did not even know uh, that any of the officers that were involved or had anything to do with this case had been listening to the phone calls. <clears throat> you know, uh, that's, you know, and that argument, on the, just the rule itself has, has some attraction to it. You know, that basically no statement of the defendant was ever uh, admitted, ever received. But the, the question is, is really different than that. And, and that is, is that but for the statement of the defendant, uh, they never would have uh, discovered uh, the existence of the book. Uh, and I think Judge Loken is really kind of on to where is the prejudice in this case. It actually ties directly to uh, the argument uh, at closing, because at the argument at closing, uh, the statements uh, uh, were made uh, that, you know, uh, first of all, there, there was an opinion offered as to the truthfulness of Mr. Truax, uh, and that skirts very close to the edge of things we've said are just like, that's improper. Uh, and then you look at, you follow it up with uh, some references to the testimony, which is, is, is more proper, and so it becomes a very close question. But, but, to, but at some point in the argument, the argument is advanced that, you know, on the stand, having been coached by Jerry Spence, uh, Truax knew exactly how to testify um, and uh, how to cry, how to show your heart. Um, and so while that's tied to the, to the, to the book, 
it's also really related back to the uh, the uh, the uh, opinion as to the truthfulness of Mr. Truax generally, right? And so the argument can be advanced, and I and I think that's what they're trying to advance is that. The prejudice here really is we didn't know about the book. We couldn't prepare for the book. You used the book uh, in a way not simply to impeach my client, but to bolster your opinion as to the honesty and the veracity of Mr. Truax's testimony. And that, my friend, they argue, is prejudice. Why are they wrong? <clears throat> I'll, I'll go right to the... I guess prejudice about the term theatrics. The prosecutor is allowed to make fair comment on the evidence, and the jury saw a man who was on the stand who <clears throat> testifies Sorry, clearly. Sorry, that's non-responsive. That, that, yeah, sure, you can make, make an argument, but can you, can you make the argument from, from with, with evidence that's a result of a discovery violation? Your Honor, once again, I submit that uh, there was no discovery violation. We didn't try to use any of the statements that he made. This was something where none of this information uh, about the jail call. Back to Judge Erickson's question, please, with the responsive answer. I apologize. I believed, I thought that I was. Uh, the prejudice here, uh, I, I don't believe that there is prejudice because I believe that it was a fair comment on the evidence because this is a publicly available book. It is something that the defendant knew about. That his counsel didn't is a whole other matter, but that's between him and his attorney. The United States found out about it, but none of the rest of this information, his phone call with his aunt talking about ordering books, asking her to order books, defendants do that all the time, and we don't look at them and say, oh, we got to look into that book. Just because someone orders a Jerry Spence book or any other of a number of books that are popular in jails does not indicate that a defendant is automatically <clears throat> going to take the stand. And nor would an officer know those things. It was when he was on the stand. But, but the cross-exam was a result of the alleged discovery violation. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. It probably The, the cross-exam probably would have been excluded as irrelevant and not probative but for uh, this. This was not in the United States possession, so I submit there's no discovery violation. It was, I thought it was at least two days before trial. It was the... the pre, I mean, the, the, the violation, as, as the key violation argument is, is the last two and a half days, as I understand the defendant's brief. It was the second day of trial. It was that evening. It was, I, I believe, the end of the second day. The defendant was on the stand, and he started uh, doing his different things where he was uh, acting upset and, and failing or acting like he could not answer questions. Uh, and so after the testimony, the officer said, the officer who had testified earlier, uh, he said, well, I wonder if that has something to do with the book, and I don't recall the exact conversation. It's not in the record. Uh, but he pointed it out to the prosecutor. The prosecutor, uh, we just happened to have an, a copy of the book in our office. Another prosecutor had it. So they looked it up, and they found things where uh, it was relevant after he took the stand. But nothing about any of the uh, things leading up to it. 
told the prosecutor, told the government that it ought to go get these jail calls or uh, turn them over as discovery. There was nothing in there. They would have been irrelevant until the time the defendant testified. And that's when the book became highly relevant. And it... And that's when the prosecutor uh, began the questions about it. And, and, the, and the issue, of course, as we look at this is, is, is uh, should the disclosure have been made earlier? You're arguing that it, that it didn't need to be because uh, it was irrelevant. The statement itself was never coming in, so the phone calls themselves uh, uh, did not have value. Uh, and they weren't discovered until the defendant had actually testified, and then it's all about impeachment. And there are things that come up whenever anybody testifies at impeachment that were, are, uh, the relevance is unknowable until that happens, and, and, and therefore the disclosures should be excused, right, in this circumstance. That is. Right. That's, that's your argument. You that know. is my argument better stated than I can make it. Now, if, if that doesn't happen, if we say, ah, you know, probably uh, knowledge of the existence of the Spence book, knowing he was about to take the stand, that at that point probably had some relevance, should have been produced. Um, the real issue I've, I, that I keep seeing here, and I hate to, to do this because you leap to this point, if it's not if it's not properly admitted, then the real issue is what kind of prejudice develops out of it. And it really is this twofold thing. It's the, the first statement, which is uh, that there's theatrics and, and he's not uh, telling the truth. But then there's this this very forceful doubling down on the testimony on the statements within the Spence book, right? I mean, this wasn't played uh, lightly in in the in the uh, government's closing argument. It was hammered home in a way that if there's a problem, this there seems to be far more likelihood of prejudice here than you'd see in the ordinary case because. You, you know, you didn't just simply say there were a bunch of theatrics. That's consistent with the Jerry Spence book, right? And, you know, you heard the evidence. You saw the witness. You draw your own conclusions, right? Which you might have made that argument. But instead, you made the argument where you talk about, you know, exactly show them their pounding heart. You know, I mean, I, that, that may, that's not it. But he says, I think it was that Truax knew and, knew how to how to play on your emotions, that he was told to show them your heart. It's a pounding heart. You saw the Spence book, you know, and 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 that may be a bit different thing. So why is there no prejudice there? Assume for just a minute that 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 you should have disclosed it. Uh, your Honor, I submit that there is no prejudice there because first of all, and I and I I'll I'll get to the exact details, but there wasn't an objection. The prosecutor made that closing argument during her beginning closing. It didn't just come up in rebuttal. And that's where problems so often come up, and that's where occasionally a reversible error will occur. Here, it was twice during her opening closing. Mm -hmm. And she brought it up, and it was completely tied to the phrases out of the book that uh, Commander Gromer had talked about were in the book. He confirmed that they were in there. She directed her argument exactly at what he did on the stand and what was in the book, and it showed that it was essentially an acting job. She did, I believe, call it an acting job, page 257 of the transcript. He's acting in general. That's where she follows it up, acting and theatrics, Theatrics is another way of saying that he's acting. He's putting on a show. And she tied it, the specific things that he had done 
to the specific quotes in the book. That's why it wasn't an improper uh, closing argument. That's why there's no prejudice uh, resulting from any alleged discovery violation. Again, I go back to just briefly, this was not, this book is really what the evidence was that came in at trial, at least testimony about the book and the defendant's receipt of it and different things. He confirmed that he read it cover to cover. And then he said, I don't remember that line, I don't remember this line, and so they were read into the evidence. That's a publicly available book. It's available uh, to anyone. I have a quote in my brief, and I cannot find the site on it right now, uh, but it goes to when things are publicly available. They're as available to the defendant as they are to anyone else. I argue that it was even more <coughs> available to him. He had it in his possession. He got it from his aunt. That's all true enough, but, I, but what's troubling is if the government had disclosed it knew about the book before he took the stand, defense counsel would have prepared him much differently. Arguably so, Your Honor. I, I, I think I, it's more than arguable. Okay. I mean, may, well, there are some there are some clients who won't who won't take advice, but but I think we can put that aside. Okay. Uh, and and I don't disagree that there would be different preparation. So why shouldn't Why shouldn't we have another trial to to see how it plays out uh, with with all cards on the table? Because again, Your Honor, it wasn't discovery. It wasn't something that was even relevant or considered. It wasn't in the it possession. Was known to the government before he testified? No. No. It was he had already started testifying, and that's what caused them, uh, caused an officer. But it should have been known to the government. If you're saying you're saying the government's witness, who didn't happen to be a federal employee, knew all about it. Your Honor, there's uh, the Pennington County Jail records every phone call. Uh, texts, emails that go out from the place. And so then the government should have known uh, if it did its homework. There are sometimes in cases hundreds of hours of calls. And I guess my point is that we don't always get those calls. We don't ask for them because we don't have any reason to believe that they are necessary. Did the government know he would testify in his, on, in his defense? I don't know if it's in the record, but I believe it was just when he took the stand. I don't, believe, uh, I don't believe he was on the witness list. I think he just took the stand. If he was, I, I would stand corrected on that, of course. <clears throat> All right. So what happens, as I understand it, is that the defendant takes the stand. He testifies. That evening, one of the government's other witnesses, was it the managing agent? No, it no, was not. It was not the managing case agent. So another law enforcement officer said, hey, he got the Jerry Spence book, and that's how it all comes to be. And that same evening, you disclosed that to the defense. I believe it was in the evening when they were talking. It was, after, it was uh, Officer Almeida. I don't believe he was an agent or detective at the time, but okay. I could be wrong. He testified earlier. He was the arresting person. He's the one that put the lights on when they actually arrested uh, Truax. Somehow there was a conversation that evening about his behavior on the stand, and he said something about a, uh, it having to do with this book that he ordered. 
And my understanding is that the prosecutor said, what book? Well, I've been listening to calls, and uh, that's how they then went back and listened or at least accessed them. Just so happened that another prosecutor in our office had a copy of the book, and so they looked at it, I believe, right away the next morning. I believe it was the next morning when uh, it was disclosed to defense counsel that they had it. So not a lot different than like a lot of the, I mean, I don't want to characterize them, but you know, the ordinary street crime cases that we usually see coming off the, the, the you know, out of Indian country where, you know, you'll have a BIA agent who says, I think we got a photograph of that someplace, boss, that, that is only discovered, you know, in the midst of trial. And those things happen and uh, they're, uh, they make a prosecutor cringe when they happen. Uh, mm-hmm. This one, not necessarily, though. I don't believe that there was any cringe here. This was just something where his testimony made it relevant. And that's because the, your, your position is, remains, and always will be that it wasn't discoverable anyhow. That's correct. Right. Thank you, Your Honors. For rebuttal. What's your best case for it, that it was discoverable? We would point to um, Nelson is a recent case. Um, Say it again. Nelson uh, was actually one you were on that panel. Um, but I think the rule itself is our best guidance here. 16A1B1 directs us that if the, that the jail call was relevant, uh, it's a recorded statement that falls under 16A1B1I, excuse me, um, it was within the government's possession, custody, and control, and the attorney for the government, through due diligence, could have known that the statement existed. So again, our point is that relevance occurs immediately with the recorded jail call. It does not occur with... Um, Mr. Truax's testimony. And that is because it reflects that he intends to testify at trial. doesn't matter when he actually exercises that right. The government is aware of that intent on October 2nd when that jail call is made. Um, trial starts November 1st. So Section 2 of that rule tells us that it's when the government could have known that the statement existed. And per the government's own admission, it was, quote, really busy doing other stuff, close quote. That is not sufficient to sit on a discovery violation. So, no, it's, you're, you're, your argument is should have discovered. So there, that is, a, that is a, a relevant retort to that argument. Not, I'm not sure I understand the question. I'm not sure I understand your answer. Under Rule 16, I'm looking at... Um, but but the, they, they say they didn't have it. They did right? have it. Pardon? They did have the jail calls. The, 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 the jail is not a federal facility, right? They were recording, they were tracking the jail calls. The, the prosecutor indicated... Who? who the jail? Uh, um, right. In the record, it's, it's ICAC. It's I-C-A-C, I'm not sure how to pronounce that acronym. But the, the prosecutor acknowledges that she wasn't aware that ICAC 
had been had been recording or following these recordings. So what I understand is essentially this, is that every single phone call uh, and every single text message uh, that's coming out of the jail in Rapid City is being uh, recorded. Uh, and it sits in a big mass of, of other collected stuff at some place. And uh, clearly uh, the government, through due diligence, could have known that there were phone calls. Is it your contention that every single phone call and text message that the defendant has made, those are recorded statements of the defendant, that they are uh, subject to ordinary discovery? No. Okay. It's only relevant if it's if it's relevant. And what they're arguing is is that uh, the relevance was unknowable and unforeseeable uh, until he actually took the stand. And we disagree with that point. Okay. Yes. Why? Because... This book instructs somebody how to testify. So even if he didn't have that again, this book instructs people how to testify. He requests a book that instructs him how to testify. It's relevant. It indicates that he plans to testify. It indicates that he um, is going to use this book to help him with that. Um, so even if he gently cried on the stand and didn't have a, a, a total breakdown, it doesn't tie to the breakdown. It ties to the fact that it reflects he intended to testify. And so Jerry Spence ordered, wrote. If the, he'd ordered a book on the on the uh, uh, Clarence Darrow's tr defense, uh, so that would have been. Well, that, that's about testifying, so that's discoverable or, or has to require mandatory disclosable? Possibly. Um, in this yeah, possibly, if, if, if it looks like a good argument after the fact. You know, the Jerry Spence book specifically is written by a criminal defense attorney on how to prepare for a defense case. And it's written for lawyers, right? I mean, Jerry Spence did not write this book to, to give to defendants. What he's really doing is he's saying it's important that your client testify from the heart, that, you know, that your client uh, lets the jury know what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, that they are not afraid to show their emotions. And, of course, I mean, um, I did... Uh, a little defense work, but I did enough to know that that's just sound advice generally. I mean, as, as a practical matter, anything that makes your client more human uh, in a criminal context is important because the reality of it is when the defendant takes the stand, way too many juries just jurors just see bad guy. And so you have to find a way to make bad guy into kid next door, right? And one of the ways you do that is by allowing that witness to demonstrate their humanity, right? And this thing is a complete nothing burger if it's in the hands of a lawyer, but it becomes powerful if the defendant has it because just what happened here, every time the defendant's in possession of this book, you're going to be able to claim that that it's all theatrics, right? Sure. Okay. And so the the, the issue you've got, though, is really is that if, if – if, see, I thought you were going to tell me that I want every one of those phone calls and every text message uh, because the relevance is unknowable until the, the trial. But if you're saying it's got to be knowable at that point, well, are you saying that reasonable diligence would require the prosecutor to go through thousands of and hundreds of hours of recorded phone messages just to make sure that there's no question about Jerry Spence's book? I would answer that by by tying what happened here. They they were tracking these phones. They were already they already did that. That is how this case agent knows that this exists. And so there was no extra requirement here to they already did it. That's why they were able to use it as a sword. Oh, I remember that I remember that listening to that jail call. Let's go get that book. It's super relevant to to get that book. Gotta get that book. And then they don't 
you know, disclose that information to us until the following morning. He, Mr. Truex testifies at 9. We find out about it shortly before 9. That's all we had to prepare. The case goes to the jury at 11.30. It's, it wasn't fair. Um, we were prejudiced. Could have moved for a continuance. Can I respond to that? I see my time's up, so I don't want to. Respond to that, and then we're, then we're Sure. Um, and to that point, I think this is distinguishable from the Nelson case, from um, other cases. This happened at a very unique part of trial. I, you know, I know you don't appreciate that argument. It doesn't land with you about that. This was um, it. It impacted his, you know, decision to testify. Um, it also. Um, yeah, it also impacted his. If, if you'd learned, well, no, he was already on the stand. He was already on the stand. Yeah, so you you, uh, you already cried. Yeah, he yeah. had already cried. You can't undo. You know, he can't take back at that point that's introduced. The government didn't know. It's just should have known. They you, did own, know. Until, like, not until the night before. No, nope. We just clarified that with Judge Erickson. So the agent knows, and by but when, the when prosecutor did the, when should did the have known. Oh, sorry, I don't want to talk over you. I, I didn't hear your question. We've had, you know, this goes around and around, and it doesn't get anywhere. How should the? Because your your argument shifts with every question, frankly. Um, the prosecutor should have known about this just because she didn't. The, the standard under the rule is that she could have known. Now, her agent knew about it. What, what rule? 16A. All right, well, give me the case for the should have known. Then. It's on the plain language of the statute. All right. We're, okay. We're, we'll, Thank you. We'll take the case under advisement. Certainly been 